Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're heading to cloud nine as Megan rides a horse named after her fiance's dead partner, Nightcrawler makes a liar out of a smart mouth peanut, and we meet and mourn the character find of 1993. I'm referring, of course, to poor beloved Beetroot. Excalibur number 62 was originally published in February 1993, and the creative team is Alan Davis on writing and pencils, Mark Farmer on inks, Joe Rojas, Dana Morse, and Michael Thomas on colors, Chris Eliopoulos on letters, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. From the depths of the earth, through the shrouded mist, it is coming, the final phase of an accident of nature. Nothing human can have this in its veins and left. It is unexplainable, unbelievable, and uncontrollable. Mutant. Any one of us could be one of them. Welcome back for more Merry Excalibur Mayhem and... This is a weird one, folks. I have been looking forward to discussing this issue for at least a decade since I first read it, desperate to talk about it, even if just to prove to myself that the beetroot section, the six full pages of it, devoted to his tragic plight, was not a figment of my imagination that it in fact exists. We'll get to that, but who am I? I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write about pop culture and comics and gender and sexuality and academic spaces and nerdy popular ones, including Comics XF, where I am currently editing a weekly feature called our best X-Men stories, which I'll keep reminding everyone to check out until it wraps up. I also remain Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, working in close concert with Alan Davis, whose Nightcrawler standum isn't quite at its apex yet, but we're on our way. I am joined, as always, by Mav. Please reintroduce us to your exploits. Hello, my name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I, uh, I'm an instructor of pop culture and cultural studies and English lit at three different universities in Western PA and um, I study comics and pop culture for a living. I do that on this show and another one called Vox Popcast. And I have lots of questions which start with why is Matthew McConaughey in this issue? And we're not going to get to it. So I just wanted to point that out because it bothered me the entire time I was reading it. So, you know, I just want to, I just want to point out that I noticed he didn't quite look like that yet, but it's sort of a vision of Matthew McConaughey of the future. So, all right, all right, all right. Are you going to keep that going for the entire episode? No, I'm just, I just, I'm just laying it out there so that like, now that you've seen it, you can't unsee it and you're yeah, just going to read the rest of the book going, Oh God, it, it really is Matthew McConaughey. It's That's true. That's weird. true. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. 
Andrew, remind us of your pursuits. Hello, I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I am a lecturer at St. John's University and project lead for the Claremont Run, a big social media micro-publishing endeavor that keeps me pretty busy. Uh, I am also a parent of two young girls, an experience that has left me incredibly sensitized to depictions of child neglect and pain, um, like, like way beyond what is reasonable. I can't watch TV shows in which a child is hurt and my wife Aww. sometimes gets mad at me. Because I'm like, no, I'm not watching Mayor of Easttown, and I'm not watching Netflix's <laughs> dark TV series. Um, so Beetroot hit me really hard in this oh, issue. Andrew. I, I, I'm interested to talk about it. Oh, God, I know. Yeah. Oh, it hit me hard, too. And I, yeah, we will talk about it. The team is joined this week by a guest who's also a friend who I've had in mind for this episode since like a year ago. So we're excited to talk to her. Pod is delighted to welcome Dr. Claire Wall. Welcome, Claire. Thanks, Anna. It's a pleasure to be here. I'll tell our listeners a little bit more about you. Dr. Claire Wall is a Toronto-based ESL instructor and independent scholar. She holds a PhD from York University in English Lit, where she defended her dissertation on contemporary post-human climate fiction. Claire's research focuses on the intersections of technology, human and non-human relationships, and the environment. She is the social media manager of the Academic Conference on Canadian Science Fiction and Fantasy. She is also an artist, a creative writer, and an avid player of tabletop RPGs. Claire's academic writing appears in the newly published anthology interrogating the boundaries of the non-human literature climate change and environmental crises and the canadian fantastic in focus so claire i want to get to talking about beetroot i'm just really looking forward to unpacking our feelings about that and the seraphim and the serpents and the advocates and all of these wonderful characters we get introduced to here but First, let's get to know you and your research a little bit better. I don't know to what degree you're a comics person or not. This is not something we've talked about in depth. So I will put that question out there. Are you much of a comics reader? Um, I am a big comics reader, but the types of comics I'm drawn to are, I mean, I think I really started with graphic novels like the Sandman comics, and I think it's Bill Willingham's Fables, and also web comics. As a grad student, my uh, nightly procrastination used to be reading up on whatever regular web comics were updated, like especially Girl Genius, Gunnar Craig Court, Girls with Slingshots. And I've also expanded, I love comics with beautiful and interesting art styles and poignant or creative narratives and writing. I read a handful of superhero comics, but most of what I'm drawn to are things like post-human and cyborg comics like Madame Mirage, Aphrodite 9, Cyber Force Rebirth. I also love comics on the fantastic side, uh, Monstrous, Heathen, Lady Castle, Once and Future Queen. And I have to admit, I have a soft spot for more playful slice of life comics like Lumberjanes, Giant Days, and also Aww, nerdy but... D&D inspired comics like Rat Queens. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, those choices will make Andrew very happy. He's written about Lumberjanes <laughs> recently, which I'll tag onto the episode since we mentioned it. So you're coming in cold to Excalibur, though, I think, right? But you might have read some of the issues around today's issue. I did. I, I did try and uh, get through some of the issues around today's You don't issue have to. to me a little bit of context. <laughs> I'm an academic, you know. Gonna do my homework. <laughs> yeah, no worries. I'm very curious to get to your first impressions, but I want to talk about some of your broader research a little bit more and it sort of comes up in some of your interest and the types of comics that you're into but um yeah tell us a little bit about your interest in post-human science fiction which is a huge terrible question but 
let me put it this way, for our listeners who are not scholars of post-human science fiction, what's your pitch for what that is? What kinds of texts do you usually study? Okay, so I think to define what I usually study, I first need to define sort of make a distinction because when people first think of post-human mm-hmm. I think a lot of the things people tend to think of is the transhuman side of it of ah, yes. you know super metahumans humanity 2.0 genetically modified people making themselves live for forever or you know um, becoming brains in boxes or some of the transhumanist depictions of oh yes we'll all live in a a giant virtual world after we dismantle the solar system and build a matricasha network and everyone will be great <laughs> everything will be great there's some really scary super ableist eugenics filled transhumanist yeah, yeah. stuff out there and i find that kind of terrifying i mean there are movements within transhumanism that are less terrifying it's not unified but that's not the type of posthumanism i'm really into the type of posthumanism i'm into is what's more called critical posthumanism it's very materially focused and focus on really interrogating the relationships we have to technology, to bodies, to how we define the human and the animal and the non-human, looks at how technology can facilitate and open new potentials for people's bodies and identities, as well as how it can be used, especially as a corporate tool to objectify non-human life and the natural world. So post-human science fiction really tends to critique anthropocentrism in culture by decentering it and challenging the assumptions that humans are the only ones with agency or the only agents that matter. These works also explore the separation of humanity from nature and non-human animals and how that's harmful to our survival because when you treat everything except human as an object for use, well, this is why we have climate change and are kind of screwed. We tend to think we can master nature, fix it through technology. And so many of the works with post-human science fiction both challenge that and also sometimes fall into that stream of apocalypticism of after humanity, as in the life continues without us, which I think is a really important thing, especially in climate change, to think about and sort of contemplate. And I guess with my research, the other thing I'm really interested in is biotechnologies and how the your view of the body and the subject changes as we start to understand that the human subject isn't necessarily a unified subject. We are also ecosystems filled with gut flora and fauna and bacteria and all these interactions we have with non-human life have huge implications for our agencies and as a society. I mean, COVID is a great example of how one tiny little microbe has completely reshaped society and will continue to do so for some time into the future. Yeah, I I haven't done a lot of science fiction scholarship stuff in quite a while, and you're just firing up my brain for... all of these topics. I mean, can I ask you a question related to superheroes and some of those concepts? Like, 
There are some scholars, including Scott Jeffrey, and I made sure I picked up the title of his book here because he is clear about differentiating between the human, the superhuman, the transhuman, and the posthuman. His book is called The Posthuman Body in Superhero Comics, Human, Superhuman, Transhuman, and Post-Slash-Human. And I've read the book. He sort of defines all those terms individually and relates superheroes to them. But I'll put it to you, Claire. Do you think there's any value in considering superheroes within the scope of the posthuman? Like, can posthuman theoretical frameworks offer something to our considerations of superheroes and what they mean? I certainly think that there can be something, but I'm a little hesitant to say that it's okay. I think you have to approach it very carefully, because on the one hand, even the name superhero implies in it some sort of humanity that's somehow better categorically than human a sort of elitism and so that and the idea of mutation science technology as as a way to form that elite humanity can be very problematic i think also that superheroes or post-humans tend to emphasize humans as somehow special and there's still even within these metahumans that have different physical bodies, there's still very normative ideals of beauty within the more monstrous looking humans. And I know, Anna, you've talked about that somewhat with Kurt, right? Because he both has certain, you know, bestial or demonic uh, characteristics, but also is very sexy. But you don't see, uh, you know, like, where are our mutant squids or squirrels? And why are humans the only ones becoming superheroes through mutation or adaptation? Honestly, get some mutant cephalopods with the ability to survive on land and beyond reproduction, and you've probably got a species that would overthrow humanity very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I want to talk about that because we obviously get some interactions here between a mutant-like Nightcrawler and some differently different mutants. And I want to talk a lot of today as much as we can about what that means and some of these interactions. Because yeah, I had like my own little like critique of superheroes as post-human all written out in my notes, Claire, but you like pretty much captured all of my thoughts on it like perfectly. <laughs> because yeah, I, I sometimes get sort of a little bit worried about applying that term to superheroes because I think there's sort of a desire to believe superheroes are more revolutionary than they are sometimes. Part of those efforts mm -hmm. to kind of elevate the genre and <laughs> give it a critical seriousness which of course we are all a part of but the risk of doing that sometimes is that you can be like oh these heroes that are sort of like busting all the boundaries of how we understand humanity and everything i was like well yeah i mean are they or are they kind of venerating the human within yeah. sort of appropriations of acceptable types of monstrousness and i mean nightcrawler is a perfect example as you said clara right he is a monster that you know you want to kiss and have sex with he's not like a scary monster in the way that he's presented even though you know he, he can have elements of demonicness depending on the portrayals but again a very different body than the bodies that we see in say the serpents in this issue right who you know can definitely appeal to various fetishes as well but are much less normative in their in their bodily presentation than a character like nightcrawler because andrew and matt you both study science fiction as well like do you have thoughts about that connection between superheroes and the post-human yeah i think i don't one thing that i was kind of thinking about what claire was talking was just the extent to which transhumanism would become a theme in x-men comics i mean even claremont would would play with like um uh oh i forget what they were called the neo something oh the neo. the neo yeah it's yeah. the neo i remember and then we would later get 
Yeah, we'd later get the Children of the Vault. We've got um, all kinds of transhumanist ideology in Hickman's run, because it's Hickman, and that's like all he does. Yes. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's cool to see a little bit of that transhumanist mentality or idea show up here uh, in a, a, I don't know, I would say a pretty early text. Yeah, so I, I think there's also certain post-human anxieties in it too that, that I like. Like it's not post-humanism, but it's kind of playing off those anxieties a little bit that Claire was talking about. Yeah, go if ahead, Matt. If you're going to call it, I mean, yes, I agree with everything everyone else has said. I especially agree with, you know, Anna, you sort of hinted at this, you know, with the question of, you know, we like to pretend superheroes are a little more innovative than they are. We being comic book academia at large, um, not necessarily the four of us. I always minimize it. I, I make the joke all, all the time that, you know, I read funny books for a living. That's like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, how, how impressive is this really? I do think it's actually impressive or I wouldn't be doing it. But on the other hand, even to the extent that we're talking about the post-human or transhuman superhuman body, Nightcrawler, you said, not that monstrous. Even the Warpies, not that monstrous. They're, none of them are, you're not having sexual fantasies between entirely non-humanoid characters with humanoid characters, which is when you might have that question. In the Inhumans, uh, in the last several years, they've sort of done this thing where, oh, Black Bolt actually has, I think, six wives, um, including Medusa. And she is by far the most human looking. The others look like, you know, oh, look, it's an it's a xenomorph that is that he's just also married to. And that's just how it is. And you're you're supposed to like sort of really idea like understand the idea that these characters are entirely non-humanoid. And in this world, you know what does this actually mean you you end up with the same thing the question shows up in star wars a lot uh where um billy d williams and donald glover who both played lando carwissian they've both said the idea that lando is lando's pansexual because the idea that anybody in that world could not be doesn't make sense there are just too many <laughs> there are just too many alien body types to where oh, a penis, you know, shouldn't be weird, right? Like, it's like, oh, right, oh, right. look, eight arms is like the norm. Oh, you've got a bug for a head. That's the norm. So, like, I think in worlds like Star Wars or Star Trek, you you get a little more of that, except that even there, for the comfortability of the audience, they don't dwell on it too much, right? Like, you don't have stories where Leia is hooking up with Chewie in canon. You have her hook up with Han the normative white guy right mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. that so i think i think it's there i think there's potential i don't think all that much is done with it because the warpies aren't that weird and you know we even to the extent that we you know we look at them as the serpents you almost consider a monster in a way that you don't consider nightcrawler because nightcrawler is a guy because you know he's kind of guy looking yeah but i mean we, we we allow him humanity <laughs> we, talk, we talked about this on the show at, uh, yeah. way way back where we talked about like andrew's reading versus my reading of lockheed versus um and chewbacca mm -hmm. versus mm -hmm. other characters like we a we think of lockheed as a pet <laughs> because he's so non-human and the book positions as a pet and also mm -hmm. i i get the you know if he's not a pet everything about him with 12 year old kitty becomes super suspect you know, I, I, I get <laughs> yep. that. Right. Yeah. But uh, but uh, but still, you know, we the idea of, you know, how human is he? Like, maybe we'll revisit this again in the Pete Wisdom days. Right. Like 
how human is Lockheed, we have to like sort of consider that in a in a world with aliens. You know, why does yeah. humanoid mean anything? Yeah, I mean, right. I'm thinking about like the TNG thing too, where they had that story where you know there might have been this other race that seeded the galaxy with life, and that's why all the aliens kind of look the same, except some have forehead ridges and pointed ears. <laughs> right, <laughs> and, like, right, right. It's like a controversial story in the fandom. Yeah, and but there's but there's logic behind that, right? That's how. It's how our brains need to reconcile this in order in order for us to be able to relate to the characters. It's really hard to estrangement and cognition. I think it's also really hard to depict it in a uh, an illustrated form. Um, and this is something that you can kind of get away a little bit more with fiction that's written rather than you know a graphic medium like i'm thinking octavia butler's lilith's brood trilogy is a really good example of this where you have the owen callie who are really the epitome of otherness like they're described as being these beings that look like they're covered in like hair-like tentacles and they can sort of shape them like when lilith first encounters one of them it's shaped it itself into a humanoid body so she's less frightened of it but that's not its form and and I mean, she she does end up having relationship with one of these beings. And there's this whole sort of one of the challenges for her is this this ultimate otherness that is both repulsive. And yet she ends up entering into a sexual relationship with it, as well as a very close relationship. And there's all these complex power dynamics that I, there isn't time to go into. But, you know, that depicting that in a graphic form would be much more difficult and actually i think i heard that they are trying to do a television show which i'm very excited about but i'm curious to see how they might try and depict the on cali because they are so other you end up with this weird thing where just because of that nature because of the way we read images we as readers tend to apply violence to it that interrupts the story when we can see it. Basically, any depiction of non-humanoids engaged in sex becomes, for lack of a better term, tentacle porn. Like it does, even if it, even if there's non-tentacles, we read it as a violent thing because we have a hard time reconciling the non-human body as you know an active consensual participant. It's either you mm. know it's either a thing that you're using or it's a thing that is attacking you. It's just hard to not do that. Um, and we do that with with any kind of, you know, like you can't have a story where a woman is in love with a horse. You can have a story where a woman's in love with a centaur because there's a humanness to it. Right, right. Well, yeah. And I mean, it's uh, it's the power and danger of images, right? I mean, images right. mm -hmm. are such powerful fuel for our imagination, but I mean, different forms of representation are different, right? So, I mean, you can get at the psychology of a thing in you know <laughs> writing that doesn't have pictures in a different way that you get at it when you right. have a medium that does have pictures and i mean mm -hmm. this is not a good or bad thing there's different things that different mediums yes, yes tend to excel at and there's many experimental comics that have done really interesting things with monstrosity and sort of get trying to get around some of these issues and again that's sort of another thing where i'd come back to like superhero comics are not always the best place to look for that kind of radicalness and again trying to be careful not to overstate that about about superhero comics always yeah and they all have something i noticed in really looking at you know the war piece and beetroot they all even the ones that have more sort of monstrous or grotesque physical bodies they all have these incredibly human faces that's clearly intentional because you're not going to feel pathos for 
a being that doesn't have that kind of face or it's much harder i think especially in how flat so many of the warpies are like we we get them for what a handful of pages and yet you know you have beetroot huge like massive crying eyes is is the first thing you see when he's introduced and that immediately makes a connection yeah yeah okay we gotta start talking about this comic more in depth because we're already talking about (laughs) Be rude in the Warbies, and I want to talk about it more. So let's do an issue summary and then come back to it. I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We'd never steal you away from your loving family and use your unique skills to build an army, we promise. But as always, let's start today's investigation with a plot summary. Excalibur 62 opens with Alistair Stewart regaining consciousness to confront two men who seem to be dressed as vicars. The leader announces himself as Peter, but Alistair knows he's really Nigel Orpington Smith, the head of RCX and its base Cloud 9, and that he's responsible for framing. Alessand. Peter is nonplussed. He pushes a button in his belt, which shifts open the wall, revealing a group of warpies who Peter calls his advocates. They are Aberdeen, Angus, Mustard, Shrew, Salt, and Celery. I'm not going to name all the warpies, but I'll give you that one. (laughs) Alistair says Excalibur will save him. Peter says that was always the plan. Meanwhile, Kurt, Kitty, and Cerise are already on the trail, searching through the ruins of St. Oswald's Church for the entrance to Cloud Nine. From the darkness, a voice emerges. It's a warpie who needs no introduction, the one and only Peanut. A group of warpies called the Seraphim attack Excalibur. Kitty and Cerise are rendered unconscious and Kurt makes a tactical choice to play possum. The Seraphim carry out our heroes to the base. Elsewhere, Phoenix is drifting across the galaxy, struggling with the knowledge that they've become a parasite of life energy. Back inside Cloud 9, Peter drops a bunch of exposition on Alistair, including the fact FI6 and Who have been absorbed into RCX. We see Micromax suspended in a machine and then we meet Beetroot. We are told through telepathy this Warpy's tragic story, which doubles as recapping long ago events in the Captain Britain comics. Long story short, RCX kidnapped the Warpies and they lived at Braddock Manor for a while, then Peter exploded Braddock Manor and took them to Cloud Nine, where he seems to be up to no good. Alistair is inside Beetroot's mind when he dies. We check in briefly with Megan, riding a horse on a beach, contemplating her recent engagement to Brian. Brian proposes racing back to the shore, but instead of flying, he falls. It's now abundantly clear he's losing his powers. We head back to Cloud Nine for the conclusion. Kurt chooses an opportune moment and springs to life using a combination of Sparts and martial skills and sheer determination to defeat the Seraphim, and then another group of even more monstrous warpies called the Serpents. As a bloodied and snarling Kurt confronts the remaining warpies while standing over the bodies of the fallen, Peter arrives with his advocates. Instead of more fighting, he puts Kurt, Kitty, and Cerise under arrest and claims that as of that moment, Excalibur is disbanded. So, Claire, I open by saying that I've been really looking forward to talking to you about this issue and obviously we've had some opening salvos already but i'm going to come back to you for some more general first impressions what was your reaction to reading this you're sort of jumping in with a lot of weird continuity stuff here and just a lot of weird stuff in general so yeah what was what was memorable to you about this reading experience i i mean this was a a really interesting experience (laughs) jumping in here um i did have to do a little homework to figure out where this arc sort of was placed and who superhero comics for you. Were. Mm-hmm. Um, I think some of the things that stood out for me that was interesting were the ways that some of the warpies like Peanut are accommodated by technology mm, uh, through yeah. that mobility device that he has, but they're also treated as as very for use medicalized and objectified even their names i mean there is that whole joke in the comic about why they end up with the names they are for categorization which is also very 
anthropocentric mm-hmm. and dehumanizing, mm-hmm. but literally animals, minerals, or vegetables. And yeah, I did find that the treatment of beetroot really upsetting and unsettling because you ha- there's this whole thing of child neglect and trauma. And also it reminded me very much of um, the concept of bare life from Agamben's idea of how in various cases of of power you have those that are deemed you know life that has value versus their life which is life that's expendable and can be you know excluded from the socio-political body and in in this case beetroot is a really you know clear example of bare life and the fact that this is a child who's been tortured and treated as an experiment and his he has this moment you know what last moment of connection but it's just nobody really uh, other than Alistair no one attempts to to intervene or save him or really cares right yeah I mean well maybe we should just start talking about that segment I mean we've already kind of gone through some impressions of this issue so I don't know I'll come to you with it first Andrew you know why is this beetroot segment here it's a huge part of this comic it's definitely the thing like more so than Kurt's fight at the end it's the thing I remember about this comic I mean other than the fact that you would probably be be emotional even if this was rendered terribly what makes this particular rendering of this particular story so effective okay right from the start i I think the thing that i I absolutely love about this portrayal is related to something that you've talked a lot about in your work about how um superhero sexuality is most interesting when you actually explore how their superpowers can become involved in their sexuality right that experience of beetroot as an infant his telepathic understanding of his mother that's beautiful that's really cool it's an application of the superpowers within that relationship dynamic that i love And, and it explains you know the depth of his sorrow uh and then yeah other than that it falls into the sort of universal human empathy effect uh that we're hardwired through evolution uh a suffering cute little baby um that that that'll mess you up every time so i think beetroot is there to humanize the warpies to create a sense of stakes uh in kind of direct contrast to exactly what claire's saying um, which is that otherwise the Warpies really kind of aren't. So I, I think Beetroot is your anchor. And without him, I don't think the story works in the slightest. What's your kind of reaction to it, Mav? I'm curious because I have some mixed feelings about it that I'll get to, but I'd like to give you a chance to sound off on it first. Similar to Andrew, I don't have kids, so I don't have as much of that visceral reaction that Andrew was talking about at the top of the show. I am a human being, so I understand, you know, (laughs) empathy and and things like that. Um, I think this works because you can relate to Beetroot. He is the only Warpy that I care about. And this arc is, I guess, four issues long, right? And, And he's only in this one. And he's the only reason I have to care about any of these people because there are 147 warpies introduced in these next four issues um and i don't know i didn't count but i mean it feels like it because they never reuse any of them it's just anytime that you need a new guy with a power they're like oh and here's fish sticks you know like they just kind of people just appear with weird names and it's fine and beetroot is the one 
that is your emotional anchor. So in order to care about the Warpies at all, beyond the fact that, you know, if if the Warpies don't have beetroot, then they're just bodies who can live and die and I don't care. So this is my emotional connection, right? Like you, like Alistair gets to live the life of this child, see all of it. And then therefore now I'm supposed to have, you know, it's a cheat, right? It's an emotional connection that sort of gets you into this world. And he is just human enough to make this work. Sort of the antithesis of everything I was talking about, you know, 10 minutes ago, where we, we never completely other somebody away from humanity because then he becomes hard to identify with. Beetroot is monstrous, but kind of adorable. If Beetroot looked like if Beetroot looked like a like a brood. Yeah, you don't have the same emotional connection when he suddenly dies, right? Like we've talked about, remember when Kitty um, kills somebody during the cross time caper and we're like, oh, this is Kitty's first murder. And it's like, no, it's not. It's her second murder. But no one counts the one where she killed the bug alien because like you don't feel for Brood. You feel for the evil lady, the evil, the evil um, sorceress lady who look like a pretty blonde girl like yeah. that that becomes a that becomes a murder and beetroot is just human enough that oh my god a baby died oh my god oh you know and and, and that's and that makes you feel for the entire warpy plight because without him they're just faceless kind of purple creatures and yeah. you know whatever yeah and we already brought up i think clara actually brought it up some of the visualization of it you know the focus on eyes and specifically very large cartoonish childlike eyes and just a point of order too we were discussing it before the podcast it's not right on the credits but we believe it was mark farmer who did the beetroot sections the page numbering of the pages that it says he did are not correct but um yeah it's not actually davis on those sections although obviously he does a very good job mimicking davis's style and the section's very effective he he does ink the entire book so he's yes. there's a through line that you know farmer is um and, and also farmer's a good artist i mean he does he's done other work so um <laughs> so it, it does fit but yes i it makes it feel it's like a, a flashback because it's a different guy yeah i was gonna say like it's sort of effective to have a different artist almost in that section because it feels almost like its own little story within the story but yeah definitely that sort of focus on the eyes and yeah i wanted to ask claire about you know the choice to do like a child as vegetable and that kind of specific hybridity and what that might do for us but i'll just say quickly like my issue with it to the extent that i have an issue with it is that it is just so manipulative it is like you know making a dog or a child suffer just to like really get you and i'm like uh, there's something about that makes me annoyed because it's easy in a way you know, like it's like one of those fish in a barrel things a little bit. And that doesn't make it bad. It just sometimes I get frustrated by those kind of manipulations, which happen a lot in Pixar movies. And it's one of the reasons I don't like them. But I also the kind of the trope of like, you know, this character gets humanized to get sacrificed for the sake of the other characters having story. Right. And I mean, that's sort of something that happens a lot to monstrous characters and you know all types of minoritized characters to kind of serve the story of other people and make other people have feelings and so i had just a little bit of a like twinge about that but but yeah so I, I do want to glad beetroot is dead no i'm i'm saying the opposite i'm saying the opposite <laughs> that i think that we should have we should have saved beetroot and maybe that actually would have been <laughs> 
I'll, I'll yeah. take the glad he's dead. Um, I mean, I don't yeah. like it, right. but uh, but I, but but the, but the pushback is, I mean, yes, it is manipulative. Y yes, everything you're saying is right. But again, I don't think we have a story without it, right? Yeah, like, I understand. Yeah. I understand yeah. the point you're making, but I don't. But the the story is monsters have families too, right? And mm -hmm. um, uh, and I can I can relate this to uh, I am Legend. I am Legend works because the you know oh my god the bad guy is will smith well which is actually easier to say now in 2022 isn't that only in the deleted it. scenes though <laughs> no it's it's more clear in the deleted scenes but it's there in the other ones and it's and it's absolutely true in the book right like oh it's yeah. The, god, yeah yeah so so like that works because you can you can identify with the you know oh my god we're talking about just people trying to live their life just because they look different is you yeah. know, like i think that you yes it's manipulative but like without having that they can they're human they live and die then i don't think there's a story um the one here here's the one that i can i can really con compare it to uncle tom's cabin uncle tom's cabin there is a character in it little eva eva only exists to make you care about this one little tiny white girl who actually cares about the plight of the slaves. She's the only person in the entire book who does. She is perfect. And so she must die of consumption. Mm. <laughs> and it is the most manipulative thing in the entire book. But it it makes the entire book work because, oh, the best of us can just die. And little Eva is nothing but, you know melodrama that's all she is in the entire book is she exists to make you feel bad when she dies Spoiler oh that's just book, 250 years old <laughs> it's just funny that you brought that up as an example because i was thinking of like lauren berlant and linda williams on melodrama and citizenship and uncle tom's mm -hmm. cabin figures quite highly in that work yeah. and i mean that is part of my complaint about it that you know in trying to humanize certain figures and you know race is often bound up in that we can dehumanize them because they're serving someone else's story and i just felt that tension in this one a little bit because we're brought in but we're also kept distance because beetroot is you know very humanized here but also very much sort of an idea to talk about a concept hmm. and you know and also that idea that you become human through suffering which you know as I know, you know, like was so much a part of sort of abolitionist literature, right? That the fact mm -hmm. that slaves can suffer is the reason that we're supposed to acknowledge them as human. But then that creates an idea that <laughs> suffering is a natural state of certain people and that you have to suffer in order to earn humanity. So there's like a lot of weird tropes bound up in a lot of that. Join me next week on my 126 week look at Uncle Tom's Cabin as we want. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's just a lot there. Beetroot suffering also, there was something, uh, and maybe this was just how I was reading it, but that, that made me feel a little bit icky about it in the fact that Beetroot seems to be portrayed as a, a bit of a, a disabled body. Yes. Um, there's yeah. that reference yeah, to him sitting and watching the other quote unquote more able and mobile um war piece play right and he's left to sit alone which i mean one why aren't they accommodating him and playing games that he could play as well it's kind mm. of mean and, and just adds to the sadness but then you also the fact that it's a disabled character and a disabled child who you go through this whole pathos and then they die and that's meant to motivate I mean it motivates an able-bodied white guy I mean, um, <laughs> and it's meant to be kind of a weird form of as you've said trauma porn for the readers as well and that left me feeling a little bit icky 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's what I'm getting at, like, the with the layers of stuff. It's just, like, you know, child and, like, obsessively cute. And we have the disability factor. You have the child compared to the teddy bear and just thing after thing after thing. And it's just a lot of pathos and at a certain point it was almost so much that it was starting to make me uncomfortable in the wrong way even though I, again I want to be clear I think this section is super super effective but I have complicated feelings about it which is all I'm trying to get at which yeah. makes it good literature it's, it's true it's true because <laughs> we've had some books recently that oh weren't. I know <laughs> <laughs> I'm grateful I'm grateful to be able to actually think about the comic instead of trying to talk about something that's not in the comic just because I can't stand talking about it yeah Claire can I get back to that question that I did talk about I did bring up and then completely moved past it which is like yeah the nature of beetroots specifically being sort of a, 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 a hybrid of human and vegetable and kind of what that does to us for us rather as like a form of monstrosity like what are some of the kind of tropes and feelings that are often bound up in that type of hybridity? That's a really interesting question. And I mean, I think one of the things with especially vegetable, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of certainly science fiction and fantasy with people becoming animals, etc. And some of that is still meant to be scary, uh, like, you know, the trauma of someone becoming a werewolf for the first time. But some of it is also whether they're shapeshifters or, or something can be incredibly empowering. But in the rarer cases, when you do have someone who is part vegetable or tree, there are cases where it can be still empowering or something, you know, like a uh, maybe a, a dread, which is sort of a hybrid of human and tree. But at the same time, it can be when you have things like uh, people who may be becoming like fungus or plants can be used as a form of horror, right? That idea of becoming mm -hmm. something that lacks agency is, I think, where the horror lies. And Beetroot certainly is a character who, in terms of being this plant-like human or this this hybrid of human and plant agency is something I mean in this last you see his life but often it's almost like a life that's lived on the sidelines he has this very strong emotional uh, feeling and moments of happiness but there's also a lot of passivity to him of him watching others and watching things and picking up on things and I mean part of that is probably because he is a telepath right but part of it is also I think connected with him having this body that is non-normative and not accommodated so I think it raises some interesting questions about the different kinds of agency and how hybridity can open new forms of agency and recognition of new agencies, but also can be scary or challenging in certain non-agencies as well. Yeah, and we definitely flip between sort of more quote-unquote monstrous sort of visions of beetroot when we see the character's full body and then when we see the truly monstrous images of, of him being trapped in this machine, right? That's, you know, <laughs> a true nightmare, as we're told in the in the caption, and it is very nightmarish versus those close-ups on, on the character's face, right? In which the face is, as I said, specifically cartoonish, but also very humanized. But I, I was thinking so much about... <laughs> I was thinking about this novel that I wrote an essay about like a million years ago in grad school called Voyage to Fermito. And I'm going to get 
the author's name wrong because it's in Hungarian and I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's like Frij Karinthi. And it's a sequel to Gulliver's Travels. And there was a segment in it that really fascinated me when I read it about you know, the most frightening creatures that he ends up in, that Gulliver ends up encountering are tree people. And there's this really affecting description of how horrifying they are because at first he thinks they're trees and he slowly starts to see that they have mouths and that they're screaming as they like get further and further <laughs> trapped in the ground. <laughs> and, you know, it's just, it's a whole satire about World War One and everything. There's like a point to it. But ever <laughs> since reading that, and that was like, you know, 15 years ago now, I've just been really interested in kind of what, yeah, like becoming plant like becoming vegetable means as a form of monstrosity because we have a lot of feelings about that the same way we have a lot of feelings about becoming insect and what that means and we have a lot of feelings about becoming animal you know becoming insect is often treated as like less redeemable and less desirable than becoming animal which often has a sexual component to it and sort of gets redeemed through that but these different forms of monstrosity are so interesting because it's thinking through you know, our perceptions of different ways of being and it's thinking through all those wonderful things that Claire was talking about at the top, right? You know, like, what are we made of? You know, which parts of us are plant and animal and and, and vegetable or like whatever, right? How do we interact with these other parts of our existence and other parts of ourselves and sort of hybrid creatures bring out those conflicts? And that is one of the most fascinating things about monstrosity. I really thought you were going to say that, like, ever since you read that, you have trouble, like, just passing trees without uncontrollably uncontrollably weeping or something. (laughs) Yes, we realize we could go on a whole tangent about Swamp Thing here, but we do not have time. Mm. That'll be another podcast some (laughs) other time. But um, yeah, let's talk about a few other things with the Warpies. Like, did you have other thoughts on other types of Warpies that we get here, Claire? You brought up the categorization of them earlier. In terms of the ways that they were visually presented here, did you find that categorization i mean it's obviously very problematic in terms of (laughs) ranking people based on humanness which is effectively (laughs) what we have here but i mean it's supposed to be right because they're evil and blah 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 but yeah did you find that those categories made sense or were interesting just open-ended question for you um i think the categories were interesting because in this case you have i mean animals certainly we do recognize as being agents, but certainly minerals and plants we tend to think of as more objects in a way, rather than even though plants are living things and recent plant research actually shows plants do some really interesting things, including, you know, sharing nutrients and even sometimes reacting to, if you will, quote unquote, warnings from other plants when they're you know, they've encountered damage, but we tend to think of them more as more inert. And so having these bodies of these very physically monstrous beings, you know, pummeling the Excalibur team and having abilities where they're specifically chosen and matched to overtake certain members of that team is an interesting thing, I think, because it sort of puts forth that challenge of how non-human, whether non-human objects and non-human agencies can have significant effects on different bodies and impact us or create barriers to what we want to do. If we're going to think specifically about the serpents, I mean, what are some of the characteristics of those bodies that make them, you know, for lack of a better term, more monstrous? Why are these bodies sort of more frightening the way they're rendered than, than some of the other bodies? If in fact they are, I think they're, they're supposed to be, even just based on their name. 
Did you think they were? I mean, I, that's a, that's a question. I mean, yeah. really. I mean, I think I think that they are. I mean, you know, I think about things like you have this one that's sort of a pterodactyl bat thing, but like with human hair and like sharp teeth. And then a lot of them have. We tend to think things are more monstrous when they betray rules of symmetry. And we have a lot of asymmetrical faces here. We have a lot of faces where certain features are exaggerated that make the character unbalanced. You know, the arms are too long or the mouth is too big or some teeth are too big or the eyes are different sizes, you know, things like that. Because I'm, I know we've talked about this on the pod previously, but when you think of a monster like the Hulk, it's like a beautiful monster, right? And symmetry is a huge part of that whereas you think about you know an early hulk villain like the leader and the leader has the oversized head he's short you know there are all these indications of asymmetry and that's part of how we differentiate between the more sympathetic monster versus the less sympathetic monster so i see a lot of those tropes going on here with the serpents but maybe i'm reading it differently yeah yeah no i think you're reading it right i for me the flaw in it is that oh here's criticism of davis i think davis's art is too cute Always. Oh, okay. Like, <laughs> I mean, I get what he's going for. And when we get to the page where Nightcrawler versus all of the serpents, you know, I, I, I do understand what you're doing. I don't feel like the serpents are appreciably more ugly and therefore less humanistic than the warpies that he was fighting the page before. So pumice and cabbage are ugly and dimwitted because, you know, like that's the that's the trope. I mean, yeah, problematic though it may be, but I don't understand why pumice and cabbage and also salt who shows up, you know, I don't understand why they are less human than this bat guy or the green guy or the, you know, the deformed werewolf guy. Like I, like, I don't understand what they're going for. They're just like sort of other slightly too monstrous to be humanoid creatures that I, I don't feel like it's different. I, I feel like the story wants me to believe it. I think if they hadn't said, and here come the serpents, the really bad guys, if they hadn't said that, in that panel in text, I would have just assumed they were more warpies. I don't think I would have picked up on it the way that I think I'm supposed to. And again, now there now in some stories, and I think this is what the story is trying to get. The entire reason Beetroot exists, like we said, is just because something's ugly, TM, that doesn't mean that it's evil. That's like what we're supposed to get out of Beetroot. But I don't think that I would have gotten that without the text adding it for me here. I, I think I would have just assumed that, yes, it is another, it, it is just an endless cadre of slightly monstrous mutants that Kurt is going to beat up on. Yeah, there's a creative letdown here, I think. I mean, Davis has illustrated Technet and the Crazy Gang, uh, which are multi-dimensional monstrous characters. These guys are defined by one attribute and one attribute only. And even if you look across the, the other side of the hero-villain dynamic, you look at Excalibur. Like, Nightcrawler doesn't look like a teleporter. Megan doesn't look like a shapeshifter. Brian doesn't look like he can fly on and on. Um, which, is a, which is a plot point exactly in the next issue, by the way. what's on the label. And yeah. I think that's... I mean, Davis should know better. Again, he's been a part of some of the most creative villain monster characters in, you know, superhero history. Um, so this th this falls flat for me. I admit, and I felt this way the first time I read this comic so many years ago, when we get on the bottom of page 24, you've let the serpents out, and then Kurt gets <laughs> the tentacles on his face, and that's a very, like, oh, crap, what's this going to be image? And then it turns out there's only the one slimy 
tentacle creature and the rest of them are just kind of regular solid monsters and i do find that a little bit disappointing just it was serpents and tentacles and i thought we were going to get something a little bit weirder there's a snake guy they they do pray though uh anna you mentioned post-human anxieties earlier on and i think the serpents are a really interesting display even more than the warpies are of post-human anxieties in the form that they channel very classic images and fears of uh, atavism de-evolution uh yeah, yeah. in the way that you have yeah, yeah. these bodies that look still somewhat semblance of humanity but very you know either somewhat reptilian or somewhat like deformed or the kind of things sort of like morlocks from the time machine right these Mm -hmm. these really abhuman or almost almost goblin or undead like some of them look kind of really emaciated almost like a ghoul and so there's that idea of de-evolution that you see pop up again and again in post-human work this idea that if you can have people becoming superheroes or somewhat quote unquote more evolved you can also have backs sliding and these the fact that they're treated as almost like uncontrollable brainless they're locked away definitely places them as less than human um and i think there's an interesting contrast in that one panel where you have kurt trying to hold or or nightcrawler trying to hold off all these uh serpents all these monstrous beings and you have the one big like fleshy figure who catches your eye is peanut lying on his side with the more human face compared to all these really distorted and many of them you don't even see their eyes in all these fight scenes you might see an eye but it's it's very like just a slit there's not much definition you see a lot of teeth and nostrils but not a lot of straight on faces whereas peanut is still somewhat humanized he's looking at Kurt, but we can see his face in that center panel. So, yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Andrew. Oh, I was actually just going to suggest something um, related to that as maybe a segue. If you're open to talking about it, I, I would really like to hear Anna's take on um, this moment of Kurt, uh, um, you know, discovering his love for Cerise and just wrecking a bunch of people <laughs> in consequence to it. Oh, the video game moment. Yeah. <laughs> super sad yeah i didn't love it um okay here's the thing i do appreciate that this moment has been teased for a long time this goes all the way back to kurt taking over as leader of the team we got him practicing his martial skills on the boards and everything we talked about this before i like the fight scene don't get me wrong i mean alan davis is doing his nightcrawler standing i do like seeing kurt's martial abilities i mean it's an interesting aspect of the character because he usually doesn't fight in that way and seeing him let loose and seeing you know what that kind of does to him and his emotional reaction to that is interesting i do like that about it what i don't like about it is the captions that specifically emphasize repression and specifically links it to sexual repression. Like he's been keeping all of this in. He's like been maintaining this stoicism. And I'm just like, that's not Nightcrawler. What yeah, the hell are you talking now. about? Yeah, like what is that? It's also like, not true. It's just yeah, not true. Like, no, like, literally, you were hitting, <laughs> like, like you were hitting on Megan two weeks ago, and like <laughs> you know, and you went on the cross time caper, and you and Alistair were having you know foursomes with random extra dimensional anime girls. Like, 
he's not repressing himself. That's just not true. It's not a thing that he did in the story. I, yeah, so. I know. And that makes me mad because it's, <laughs> yeah, it's like applying those tropes to Nightcrawler and actually Nightcrawler is a more complicated indigestion character than that. Like it's applying tropes of masculine stoicism to this character to try to make us invest in him triumphing through this very masculine fight scene. And I don't love that. I just, again, it's not really what I love about the character as much as I do appreciate the fight scene. I love seeing my guy, you know, get a focus. The fight scene is beautifully rendered. Davis is always great with his rendering of Kurt's poses and the detail that he puts into how Kurt's body moves. And we're going to see more of that in the next issue as well when we get his powers investigated. I'm very much looking forward to talking about that. But yeah, that masculine stoicism, obviously it bugs me too because of some of the more recent comics that have sort of applied that to him through Catholicism and I don't like seeing it lampshaded here so yeah I always have had this reaction like when I first read it and it brings up all that stoicism language like made a face just like oh <laughs> I don't want this like don't do this this isn't like some like weird fight that's actually about sexual repression you had two consequence freak kisses with Cerise and the issues leading up to this you spent seven minutes in heaven in front of everybody you haven't been repressing anything stop <laughs> I don't buy it because I still don't care about Cerise. And I know I'm yeah. supposed to, but like this I is know. a character that fell out of it. I mean, she fell out of the sky so that Kurt could have a girlfriend so that there wouldn't be a love triangle yeah. anymore. I know nothing about her. I don't know why I'm supposed to care. Does anybody even remember what her origin was? I mean, I, I know because I've read the rest of the book, right? But like right now, do you even remember what she wanted? She showed up one day and is there like where is she from what was she doing like when she appeared does anybody remember does anybody care no because the book doesn't want you to like i don't oh okay i love her do you do you though because <laughs> i don't know who she is other than like she's the pretty lady who's conveniently there to be upset about i i, I have no well, reason to care and the, ca the character motivations are weird here too anyway because I mean, come on. Kurt would do this for Kitty anyway, and he cares more about Kitty mm -hmm. than he cares about Cerise. Like, I, uh, yeah. I get I'm supposed to read it as a thinking with your dick thing, but come on. Like, that's a hard sell. <laughs> I mean, you brought up you, you brought up the Kitty killing the brood thing. I mean, this is a long history of their relationship. Kitty kills yeah. for the first time to save Kurt. That's the kind yeah. of relationship they have. They will kill for each other. Like, that's already been established. Like, and he would have done he would have done it for Scott. Like, and yeah, basically, really? you know, he yeah. was, and he was and he was ready to like four issues ago yeah, <laughs> so it's not it's, it's not a thing it, it doesn't it doesn't make any sense and and again i know more about beetroot than i know about cerise right now i don't yeah, care about her true. I, I, oh. <laughs> I have no reason to i know nothing about this woman who fell out of the sky a year worth of comics ago it's so. been a long time <laughs> I, like i know we have listeners who really like cerise and i like cerise in theory as well but there is very there's little more, to her character and there's more coming but it mm -hmm. hasn't like I, I mean like i'm reading these in order i'm not applying future logic to her like right now where's cerise from i mean i know where she's from because i've read issues you know 65 through like 80 but like that's not here <laughs> yeah. you know i don't know i don't i don't know why i'm supposed to care about this woman who just got knocked out i mean i'll be <laughs> fair and and say that at least you have rachel brought up and kurt's frustration and anger and helplessness about rachel i think that does make sense as a motivation and that does go way back to excalibur number 50 but adding the thing about sexual repression and cerise really lost me just uh, uh. anyway claire claire you wanted to jump um, in 
I, I wanted to page and say I found that one page really kind of funny because just how over the top the tropes are of where you have Nightcrawler standing in like his torn suit with his bulging muscles protectively <laughs> and all the monsters like with these comical expressions of fear shying away and then the two women uh, underneath where Cerise almost has this really like almost peaceful expression mm-hmm. on her face and you have these two quote-unquote described Amazonian type woman and of course Kitty like just completely passive at his feet and he's their center just in this total masculinity with the, t- the that tail like stuck up in a kind of <laughs> I'm not gonna say phallic but yeah kind of phallic way <laughs> right between his legs I mean, again, I'll be fair to it that, like, part of the effectiveness of this scene is that it is such an unusual Nightcrawler scene. I mean, this is literally the first time he's ever been this aggressive with opponents in comics before. So, I mean, I'll give it a pass a little bit because it's supposed to be unusual and it's not a way that Kurt usually behaves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But definitely there's stuff within the sequence. Like the scene I thought you were going to mention, Claire, was the page before that, which is the sexual repression line, because we we should just note how that's visualized. But in seeing Cerise in mortal peril, realizes she has stirred in him long denied passion, passion held in check by rigorous discipline, both in the pursuit of physical and intellectual perfection. And he's doing the huge splits, like the look at my crotch pose. It's just like, I think that too. I mean, like, Lord knows I love sexy Nightcrawler, but there was something just about this that was so juvenile that it almost just like, it made me laugh, but it's also a little bit uncomfortable. Also, he has a tentacle, like, literally climbing up his leg in that scene. I just realized that now. (laughs) He does. Okay, no, that redeemed it for me. I kind of like that part about it. Um, I did actually want to ask you on the topic of Kurt Ant, what you thought of, like, we've been talking about the post-human and the monstrous, and with Kurt, with that cover, um, because one of the things I noticed about the cover of the issue was just how animalistic Kurt looks on that issue's cover compared to mm-hmm. how he's drawn often within the comic. Like, you have him surrounded by all these very monstrous humans, but he's got fangs bared, he's got the yellow eyes with just, like, dots for pupils they're literally tearing off his clothing that marks him as kind of a human subject revealing all that blue fur like what did how did you read that I mean yeah it's a great cover and I do like the work that it's doing rhetorically in terms of both emphasizing Kurt's difference and similarity to the monsters we're gonna talk more about that in future issues because we get the plot with Kurt and his relationship to the warpies kind of expounded upon in the next three issues so I won't go too far into it now but I did like what it was doing there in terms of suggesting some of those relationships and again it's a shocking image to see Nightcrawler especially rendered by Davis look this aggressive and this you know again <laughs> keep putting stuff in Scarecrow this quote-unquote monstrous and and yeah I don't know I, I I like this cover a lot it's not like one that I would put on my wall necessarily but it's definitely one where I appreciate the rhetorical work it's doing but maybe I'll move it to some final thoughts and give everybody a chance to kind of bring up other dynamics from this issue that we didn't talk about because we didn't talk at all about the fact that Megan has a horse named after Brian's dead partner yeah okay we should do we should give that a couple minutes um you know what we should also do um is talk about the origin of the warpies because we should have done that off the top and we haven't for like readers who aren't aware but 
I already brought up the horse thing, so <laughs> Mav, go ahead if you have thoughts. Well, that wasn't my final thought. Uh, I have something else, but like, <laughs> okay, it's just, I, and again, I don't know what, you, what I even have to say about it other than the fact that, um, okay, for, for our listeners, I have to this day still never read the Jasper's Warp story. I've read a couple of issues from the Jasper's Warp story because I needed to know some stuff about Megan when I was learning about her years after the fact, but like, this was not available to me in initial run when I was reading Excalibur the first time. So um, this is a lot of continuity out of nowhere. I had read enough Captain Britain to know who Jackdaw was. And I've had friends who've died. It's really, really sad. I've never had a friend who died and said, now I'm going to name my pet after you. <laughs> not a thing that I've done. I, 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 it doesn't make sense to me. That's weird and creepy. And, and, and especially since it's like, Oh, just leave the horse, leave Jackdaw, the horse alone. He'll make his own way back to the stables. That's not a thing horses do, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> and why is he named after your friend, your dead friend, your best friend? It's not even just like some guy. It's like literally, oh, Jackdaw, my sidekick, some dude that I, you know, that I loved as a brother, name him a horse after him. And, and he gets to ride that horse and yeah. his possession now. And I'm not, I'm, I'm not even going to mention Girlfriend gets to ride the horse. It's, it's like so that. weird. It's a... Well, yeah, you just, it's superhero comics, right? So you see a white horse on the page. You can't help but think of Comet the super horse and the tangled sexual dynamics of that. Or at least I can't because I think too much about super sex. But yeah, I mean, I was thinking about the image of Megan riding the horse too. And the way she's kind of visually compared to the horse and the beauty that she's embodying there and of course she's in the white dress as well and then the fact that the horse is called jackdaw there's just a lot of weirdness going on there that i you know i don't know if i want to say more about it than that it's just sort of a brief little scene yeah i got nothing on it yeah go ahead okay so i I don't want to do too much on this because last episode i I sidetracked us talking about how brian's a dick um but like this scene promises a moment of actual self-reflection on the relationship between Brian and Megan on Megan's part, something she Mm. has never done. Uh, And she's all alone. She's on a horse. And the narration tells us (laughs) a time of wild serenity, a time to think, to reflect on the past and to dream of the future. And you're like, yes, I would love that. I would love a moment of agency for Megan to actually think about this toxic relationship that she's been in. And all we get is Davis telling us that she had a moment and then fucking Brian shows up uh, and she's not alone anymore. And she's not going to be thinking about her relationship. She's just back in the arms of her jock boyfriend. <laughs> I was face bombing. I wish we had a video of it as you were saying that, Andrew, because I knew exactly where you were going. And I was just like, yeah, she's here having this like beautiful moment of reflection. And then Brian bubbles in like, hey, Megan, and then like falls in the ocean and wrecks her mom. <laughs> like, he is such an asshole. <laughs> yeah, I take I take your point there, Andrew. I think that that's fair. <laughs> All right. Did we have some other final thoughts? I'll go around the horn and I'll come back to you first, Mav. Did you have an actual final thought about this issue? Yeah. Stuff that we didn't oh, get yeah, a chance yeah. to talk about. There's lots of other stuff. Yeah, no, this is very specific. Uh, I just want to point out Farron's not in this issue. And and, and and yes, there are many issues that he's not in, but but I want to point this out for a very specific reason. Farron was in last issue. He has a moment w- with Kitty where Kitty realizes, okay, well, he's a kid. He's doing his best, blah, 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 blah. And, th- and, and that's a thing, and, and it's fine, except that if I'm going to turn your attention to page four, where we learn that Excalibur 
is shorthanded. They are worried about this mission. They, Kitty, uh, like Brian is not here. Megan is not here. Rachel is not here. Kurt and Kitty are like, well, we've got to go help Alistair. We'll take Cerise, you know, that character that we know so much about. And we got to, we're going to go rescue our best friend and we're shorthanded. And we've got this kid who's an all powerful magic user, but now nah, we're just going to leave him at home because he's so annoying. <laughs> like, 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 I, I mean, did Davis just forget that he invented this character? I don't think so. I think I think that there's the thing where Alan Davis is like, I wrote a Farron moment last issue. I'm not doing two. This is, but like he I'm invented just... that character. I know. Like... I know. But, no one but made him. And there's no reason, like coming up, there's no reason for him not to be here. He just didn't feel like using him. <laughs> which is odd because they make the express point they could use help but they chose to not bring their magic user you know because he's annoying i guess i don't know it's not he's not acknowledged and i just find that really interesting it's just like oh did you forget that you have another character or did you just not want to deal with him <laughs> yeah would it have been better if they just said that on page i can see kurt having a line like that like there's it's a fair no no <laughs> no <laughs> Andrew, did you have a final thought for us? Uh, yeah, Claire mentioned the scene earlier, um, and it was very dehumanizing where the the Warpies, or sorry, the advocates are talking about naming practices. I did think there was some cool fourth wall breaking in there, though, uh, when the one character is like, I want to be called Rogue, but she can't be called Rogue because there's already a Rogue, uh, which might be Davis sort of complaining about the challenges of naming new characters um, in a very bloated Marvel universe. Yeah. Okay, so... My final thought, I guess, is maybe this nature of the Warpies. And so I'm calling them all Warpies. And then there are categories of Warpies within the larger category of Warpies. Is that how we're all agreeing to understand this? Yes. Like Seraphims and animals. Oh, well, I don't know if you have. Well, yes, but yes. Uh, and some Warp And I was thinking you were talking about the, the animals versus vegetables versus minerals. I think they're all, they're all warp Warpies, though. Yes. Warpies are the overall. Warpies is the name that RCX gives to its mutant operatives yeah based on how they got their powers yeah so okay the first time i read this and i think it was like an issue of new excalibur that confused me about this because there is an issue of new excalibur that suggests and i don't think this has got picked up as canon i think it's just got suggested and it was inconsistent with what we've been shown before it suggests that the warpies are interdimensional beings that were brought into our reality by the jasper's warp but i believe the actual canon you know established previously is that they are human children that were warped by the warp am i correct in that thinking that was my understanding yeah because it was just like when i realized that that's what it was and had kind of my thinking about that corrected you know one of the many times that i read this in the past like we'll come back to it but that is a very different way of experiencing the story versus the first way i experienced it where i didn't actually think that they were human and i just was thinking about my assumptions there although again i think it was informed by that later issue that said that they actually were from the warp and we've had other characters from the warp as well like the crazy gang but um you read the uh, other issue first then you're saying you read yeah the yeah yeah i read the new okay. one first and then didn't read the captain britain stuff until like many years later so yeah so i was confused about that at a time yeah and captain britain they're a metaphor for war refugees yeah, I have since encountered that, but we will talk more about that in a future issue. But yeah, just so those listeners that we have that might not remember that whole origin, I did just want to signpost it here. And I will talk about this more in a future episode as well, because we're going to talk more about Cloud9 and RCX and Peter. But uh, I do really love that Kurt's arch nemesis gets set up to be... Um, 
an evil priestly zealot, which is a much better relationship for Nightcrawler and priesthood than Nightcrawler being a priest. Um, but we will talk about that uh, more. He's going to have some interesting interactions with Peter in subsequent issues. The final word comes to you, Claire. Stuff that you would still like to talk about this about this comic that we didn't get a talk chance to talk about or anything else about post-humanism, transhumanism, monsters. The floor is yours. I mean, two thoughts come to me on the topic of the Warpies. Something that I thought was... Interesting in the way it was touched on, and I don't know if it was is expanded on more in the run later, but the fact that these are ultimately, even though most of them are, you know, the aggressors or to be read as the, the aggressors against Excalibur in this case, that these are essentially children who have been taken away from their families and turned mm-hmm. into medicalized objects of study and experimented on and in some ways maybe even radicalized. And this is just dealt with in such passing because it's a very action-focused narrative. And, and I found that a little bit, you know, f- for, for me, it's like, wait, well, wait, there's this whole big ethical issue and we're moving on to big fight scenes and Megan on a horse and I want to know more about this. <laughs> why is this happening and why is, why is nobody outraged about this? And I guess the second thing that really that struck me a little bit was on the topic of Megan, which I had to read up a little bit, was the fact that Megan and, I mean, she's not the only female X-Men who can change her body, but sort of the idea of Megan as a as a, a feminized form of like leaky body and the way her body changes in ways that she can't really control and in ways mm. that some of the men around her, especially her boyfriend, seem to find somewhat threatening. Oh that's really good yeah. reading Megan for one issue. Yeah. That's pretty yeah. much it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. And uh, we are going to see less and less of that in their relationship <laughs> as it goes on, unfortunately. Um, I'm Anyway, I we always do that thing where we like complaining about stuff that's happening in the future, even though we're trying to like stay focused on, on this issue. But um, yeah, that is a very good read of Megan. And she is a fascinating character. And, and we love her deeply for all of those reasons. Yeah, I'm sad to leave this one behind because there's so much more that I would love to talk about. But we're going to be seeing the Warpies again in the next few issues. So we'll come back to some of these questions of monstrosity and uh, Claire even brought up Morlocks and we can talk more about how the Warpies compare to the Morlocks the X-Men Morlocks of course which are a reference to the H.G. Wells novel but to close out this particular episode let us spotlight a letter from the Sword Strokes letters page as I like to do this one is from Julie Branch in Panama City Florida dear Sword Strokes I think all you guys doing Excalibur are really doing a great job I've really been able to enjoy a comic book for once the X-Men coming to help in issue 57 was superb. I've been buying Excalibur since I figured out you guys have my favorite character in the Marvel Universe, Nightcrawler. I also like Shadowcat. Is it true that you're going to have an issue on Kurt's origin with Amanda Sefton? Wow! Triple exclamation marks. I've been dying to know some stuff like, what does his mother look like? What's her name? What does, does Kurt have any brothers or sisters? And why did his mother leave him with Eric Wagner way back in Germany? Question mark, exclamation mark, question mark. Hurry, please hurry. Get that issue out. <laughs> so until Mrs. Wagner makes an appearance, make mine marvel. And the thing that I found funny about that, so until Mrs. Wagner makes an appearance, and I was like, does she mean his wife or his mother? 
I think she needs Eric's wife. Okay. But, like, wouldn't that mean that Julie's going to stop buying comics once we learn it's Mystique? Uh, Okay, so, so, okay, let me take you back to the 90s when we... So, the Make Mine Marvel thing, because we should address this, because we read letters a lot. Make Mine Marvel was this thing that people started doing it was like it was like you know it was like a stand slogan and then people started saying you know these ironic until this happens but if you actually go through and read letters column a lot of the make mine marvel things are not great because they're things that are that either are very obviously going to happen or pretty like like essentially you're saying it'd be a lot of you know until peter parker and mary jane get married make mine marvel and i'm like but (laughs) But you want that to happen, and it's clearly going to. And so Until there Spider-Man were a lot of those. Eight arms make mine marvel. Yeah, yeah, there were a lot of there were a lot of those, and and you kind of went, eh, I don't think you really know what irony is. Um, <laughs> but you know, my my problem with this letter is, you know, she's like she implies that she doesn't like comics, but she has favorite characters that are Nightcrawler and Shadowcat. And she's been buying Excalibur all along. She's like, she, I can I can enjoy a comic for once. And I'm like, why Why is this your hobby? Why are you writing us? <laughs> that was my thoughts on that letter. I think because Excalibur and, you know, any comic starring Nightcrawler and Shadowcat is just so obviously superior to every other comic being published. Yeah, but she implies that she doesn't like me. comics otherwise. It, it, it was, oh, I was very confused. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but if, if Julie's listening, like, do let us know whether you stopped reading comics after after X-Men Unlimited, whatever number it is, where Mystique throws baby Kurt over a waterfall. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it's understandable. <laughs> Staying. There's a meeting of the round table. No, I can't. All right, we will wrap things up there. Other than to say, Claire, thank you ever so much for joining us. I'm so excited to finally get to talk to you about Warpies. But before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of the awesome things that you get up to. So let us do that now. If you would like people to find you online, where can they find you? And is there any writing or other projects or anything at all that you would like to plug for our listeners? Now's your time. Um, I mean, if people want to find me, the easiest way is probably on Twitter at Cli-Fi, all one word, underscore Claire, C-L-A-R-E. And if you are interested in checking out my art, I do have an account on Instagram for Claire Wall Paintings. And I mean, if you want to get some of my academic writing, I just had a piece published in an anthology called Interrogating Boundaries of the Non-Human Literature, Climate Change, and Environmental Crises, edited by Matthias Stepan and Suna Borgfeldt, and it has some really awesome essays in it about the post-human climate literature and approaches to non-human animals and nature. My work in there is on viral agencies and mutational post-humanism, so if that's your thing, go check it out awesome i love that we will link all those things in our show notes and yeah just thanks so much again claire oh no thank you for having me this was amazing 
Next, in one week's time, we will be discussing Excalibur 63, Denial, in which a bunch of scientists use science to scientifically confirm Nightcrawler is scientifically awesome. It's going to be a fun discussion. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, which you can find via our website or the Box Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and Matt, for another monstrous conversation thank you claire for providing post-human flair thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thoughtform music for our truly epic theme song play us out hope we give the saga of beetroot the respect that it deserves <laughs> <laughs>